Welcome to Mandy the ABA and Aditi the OT's podcast. We are two women across two time zones from two cultures, two allied health fields offering two very different perspectives. Yet with a common goal of breaking down barriers and creating breakthroughs to promote interprofessional collaboration. Hello everyone, welcome to our ninth episode, Collaborating on Fine Motor Assessment. But before we go there, I'm so sorry you missed last week. Mandy had a bit of a apocalyptic disaster in Perth. Share, Mandy. Uh, I mean, I feel a little bit embarrassed to say that, you know, we're the first, for the first time we went into lockdown and that was part of the barrier for us. But yeah, on top of our first full lockdown, that is, we've basically weren't allowed to leave the home. There's also really bad fires here in Perth and um, it was literally just, you know, snowing ash here. So, yeah, literally looking out at the sky and the sunset one night, it was just a red sky, red moon and ash in the air and we're all locked inside. It was a little, it was a little crazy here, let me just say that. But good news is five days in lockdown and we're out and we are living it up again. So um, I just apologise to everyone around the world who's just have experienced that for long periods of time. We've been very fortunate until now. And so um, fingers crossed we are through it. Well, I'm just glad you're okay. Uh, yes, yes. Back on board. Lockdown yeah. is a, an issue all over. So hopefully we're all getting through it. But let's talk about our topic today, which yeah. I'm really so very excited about. So welcome everyone, OTs, ABAs, RBTs, students, educators, collaborators. We're going to talk about how to collaborate on fine motor skill development and assessment both from an OT and ABA lens. So the reason this is one of my favorite topics, because I really think we could come together here and we actually have proof to show that we can. So in our Facebook group, we will be sharing some of the data and assessment pictures so that you can actually see how some of these assessments work. And we're going to continue with our case study regarding Sam, our nine-year-old client with autism, who had originally presented with very significant aggressive behaviours and self-injury. But thanks to Mandy, we now have improved that scenario. He's not as aggressive and we're actually able to engage. So we're going to look at how OT and ABA work together to address fine motor development and assessment, take a peek at strength because that's something that's often overlooked. And we will share perspectives on how things united us and things that perhaps divided us. And of course, we'll come together at the end and meet our goal of helping Sam. So before we start on that, Mandy, give us our weekly shout out. Yeah, this week's shout out goes to Elizabeth Horshin. Someone I haven't had the privilege to meet, but I've heard about from so many different angles. Elizabeth was the founder or is the founder of the Horsham Learning Centre, a highly recognised educational consultant. She is the recipient of both the Lifetime Achievement Award and the Our Teacher Award, highly coveted awards from the Standard Celebration Society. She's touched the lives of thousands of professionals and children and their families. I know she's a very passionate advocate for those with special needs. She has also helped numerous others start and run their own schools and learning centres and her fluency-based curriculum materials, assessment tools and instructional programs are in use around the world, including in my own little clinic in Perth. And Elizabeth is carrying on the work of her late husband, Eric Horton, who was a student of Ogden and Lindsay and a pioneer in the development of precision teaching. So a huge shout out goes to Elizabeth. 
her. Oh gosh, I don't want to. Oh, I don't want to reveal her lovely. age. You have met her. <laughs> <laughs> I, I met her actually at a precision teaching conference, and oh, she's just lovely. And I really am a fan of all her work with uh, handwriting, specifically that I've experienced as an OT. I was really drawn to that, and I'm hoping to share that soon on my website www.dr.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot.dot
skills and repeated practice of those throughout, you know, some of our sessions four hours long. So of course, our goals are going to look very, very different. What I would say is though, in general, our, what we were teaching is the way I would describe it were a lot finer slices of behavior because a lot of her goals would have incorporated accommodation to allow him to, you know, complete some component of the skill. Whereas because we had the luxury of time, we were looking at getting fluency of component skills that would then apply into higher level skills. So I think that's how I can say we, you know, our goals initially looked quite different from her assessment and my assessment. And then we were able to come together to look at these are things that we can both work on that we know are going to contribute to higher level skills. Okay. So I definitely agree, you know, that finer slices, because I think we tend to look at the whole picture. What can you do now? What can I get, you know, Sam to be independent, successful with now? And that's where the adaptations and accommodations come in. And then we start going, okay, what can I work on in the meantime? I will say that I have been very successful lately in engaging parents in home programs Mm -hmm. to do some of the practice that uh, typically they would do in my session. So have more carryover and hopefully build fluency, which you will talk about later. So the process, I guess I think we should chat about the process in OT and ABA. What's the assessment process in ABA? Yeah. So, you know, at Fit Learning, we have very specific assessment criteria. We have developed our own, you know, sets of assessment and very often because I tend to work with children with developmental disabilities and not all fit learnings around the world do that. I've also incorporated my own measures. So from my perspective, we looked next week, we're going to talk about the big six component of it. But I look at a lot of components because handwriting was within our academic instruction for him that were, you know, contributing to his inability to form letters and perhaps, you know, had our OT, had she not been working in collaboration with us, but just been working with him on her, her own, she probably would have moved straight into letter formation. But this little boy had virtually no ability. I think you would know what I meant if I described his hands indeed, if we would have seen kids' hands like that, particularly children that will do, you know, high rates of hand stim. Their fingers are very straight and very flexible, and they have a lot of difficulty in bending their fingers and then, you know, independently forming a pincer grip. So we, uh, I have developed my own little scope and sequence for getting hand control before we even start handwriting. So my assessment incorporated these components of, of handwriting and the big six plus six. And obviously, what we do when we measuring fluent performance or what what the rate of performance is on intake is we set a timer. I'm sorry if I'm telling people stuff they already know, but we're aiming this audience at both OTs and APA. So, I mean, we set a timer and we count correct responses, and I'll give you some examples in a moment, within that timing interval. And we compare that to what we know is fluent performance, and then we know whether this possibly could be contributing to difficulties forming letters at a higher level. So some of the things we look at is a child's ability to pick up a pencil without having to adjust it or manipulate it in their hand. So we will measure, I have the pencil, if you can imagine the pencil is sort of facing towards the child on the desk, and then I have them sort of bend their hand backwards, pick up the pencil with three 
uh, points on the pencil, so the pencil grip. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll actually draw. You'd be very proud of me, Adeti, there. I make an accommodation there. No, we call it the three dots assessment because we put three, you know, whiteboard marker dots on the tip of the pointer, uh, the little fold in the middle finger and the, the thumb. And those three dots should come together on the pencil. And then we measure the rate of their, and then the, you know, the pencil then should sit back in the web of the hand. Thanks for that term there, Adeti. I know you. You taught me that, and then, <laughs> and then Sam, Sam was able to identify, you know, every single part of the hand, which was really impressive. And to be honest, that was actually a really big part of our instruction was him understanding how to hold a pencil, not just doing it, but understanding the parts of the hand. Which, because as you know, Adeti, a lot of kids will hold their pencil very upright, and it gives them no control over, you know, pivoting and manipulating the pencil. Anyway, so the first part of our com- uh, assessment was, you know, putting the pencil down and picking it up because that is a component of fluent handwriting is being able to reach out for a pencil and pick it up very easily without having to think about adjusting it or holding it too tightly or um, having, you know, or your fingers constantly moving on the pencil. So that's our first component handwriting skill is picking up and putting down the pencil. And this is not a goal that I've ever seen anybody else <laughs> uh, teach before. Maybe they have. Maybe have people have done that. But I've found it's very, very successful in then not having to constantly prompt a child to hold their hand correctly. And so we mentioned we take our own aims of what uh, fluent performance is on that if we don't already have a published aim from somewhere else and that is just a matter of getting somebody that's pretty competent either a coach or another student that can already do that skill and then measuring how many times they can do it within a timing interval so that was one of the components Uh, you know I know the OT probably would not have worked on that because her accommodation might have been to put a pencil grip on the pencil and you know there are lots of different adapters aren't there a daddy that can assist you to hold the pencil properly because she wouldn't have had time to spend on that goal so that was the first thing we measured uh then we looked at his ability to pivot the pencil up and down so one of the things that kids will often do that i see is if the hand if the they will move their whole hand rather than pivoting their fingers so we measure fluent performance on pivoting the pencil up and down while holding the pencil in the correct grip uh, that's another component skill that we look at. We then also look at the ability, and I, I'll give credit here to Elizabeth Hortons, for anybody looks at her writing materials, she has really nice, simple pictures in the front of her book of how a child should be sitting and at what angle the paper should be and where their hands should be placed on the paper so that the hand can move beautifully across the paper. And so I borrow, I nearly said steal them, but it's these are materials that <laughs> I have purchased. So, yeah, she has these beautiful pictures just both for left-handers and right-handers, and we always have that in our binders show, to show kids how they should be holding. So the next thing we measure is a child's ability to adjust paper to 45. And so we'd say, three, two, one, angle the paper. Okay, put it back. Angle it, put it back. Angle it, put it back. Mm-hmm. And we see how quickly they can adjust the paper from the edge of the desk up to a 45-degree angle. So that's another component school of handwriting that kids shouldn't have to think about. Like they should be able to pick up their pencil, angle the paper, have their, their hand pressuring the paper at the right strength so that the paper doesn't move because I'm not kidding I've sometimes looked like an absolute genius in improving a kid's handwriting just by teaching them to hold the paper at the top of the page and literally because the page is not moving around 
Right. You know, within one session, the handwriting improves like 3,000% and you look very clever, but actually just nobody had taught them to hold the paper firm enough that it doesn't move. And actually their letter formation was beautiful. It's just that the paper was moving. So so then we measure how many times like we in a, in a timing interval, we go, okay, hold the paper firm and we try to remove the paper from underneath the child's hand and see if they can maintain that firmness on the paper against the desk across an interval of time. So are there all these little components that we look at that um, perhaps our OT wouldn't have drilled down as far to look at what might be causing, you know, letter formation barriers? Okay, lovely. I love the part where you talked about you made sure Sam knew how, you know, what you were doing, what you were working on, why it was important, that social, emotional and cognitive component really would resonate with OTs for sure. Yeah, because it also gives them the language so that you can, you know, instruct them outside of a timing, we would call it, you know, an interval of time where they were working. You know, we could pre-prepare them, say, remember, don't forget the three dots, you know, pencil in the web. So all of a sudden it opens up this language to them that they can, the prompt that you give them is obviously an effective prompt. Yeah, and I think also recently I was talking to somebody in the standard acceleration group and they were saying, we're talking about, you know, it's really important for the student to not feel like this is being done to them, that they're actually part of the journey. And I just thought that was really poignant because sometimes it feels that way, you know, like you have to do this, you have to do that. So if they have that buy-in, I think you're also going to have some success. So I just wanted to point that out for OTs because I think we would resonate with that. So our assessment process is quite different. Again, I love how precise and very fine-tuned you are in your process. Ours tends to be more general and global, sort of an umbrella of why is this child struggling? And of course, we look at the physiology, the anatomy of all the parts of the body, how they work, and also the cognitive aspect. So my assessment with someone like Sam, for example, would probably be range of motion, because you said he's a bit floppy with his um, fingers, flexibility. So that would be one. And of course, I do an assessment like the BOT or the TVPS or any of those sort of fine motor assessments if I was doing handwriting. For fine motor, you know, the bot's really good, but also I would do strengthening. I would look at his strength and range of motion. And most OTs know about strengthening tools, but a lot of them don't use the measurement tools because we typically don't uh, take baseline data. So I really encourage everyone to use this if you are measuring strength. So if Sam was having difficulty forming those fine motor skills. And then there's also co-contraction. You've got to maintain your muscles in that position. I'm guessing he had, you know, struggles with that too. That would mean that strength was a huge component. So there is something called a dynamometer grip strengthening tool. And it's basically, and this will be on our Facebook page, you can see, they just squeeze this tool and it measures how hard they squeeze. And actually I used it recently to measure pain. Because when uh, the student was encountering pain, you know, your grip strength decreases when you have pain, obviously. So it's a really handy tool and it's got some nice norms. There's actually a study, a 2017 study. It's called Hand Grip Strength, a population-based study of norms and age trajectories for it's for 13, uh, for three to 17 year olds. And it's calibrated. It gives you nice norms in case you're interested, but you can use this normative data 
to compare your patients and obviously, you know, for baseline data. Now that's for grip strength. So I would do that. And then I would do a pinch strength. There's also a dynamometer for pinch strength. There's one that has sort of like a bulb, like a, like a balloon at the end. Oh yeah. Or there's one. Yeah. That's just like your pinch and that can actually be used for different types of pinch. So like your three point pinch or your lateral, you can use all those. So I really wanted to make sure that I introduced those tools because they're out there. They're generally used in hand therapy or with adults, but I've started using it in my practice with pediatrics to really show the growth or with the intervention in that area. The other thing I was going to say is you were talking about Sam, you know, was very floppy with his hand movements. Yes. So we would, in that case, use a lot of sensory modalities. Here's that S word again. Don't shut me (laughs) out. But, you know, things like making sure you're playing with different textures and also temperatures and incorporating that. So I might do, you know, find something in a, in a bucket of rice or I might do a, a bucket of crushed ice, find things because you're trying to increase awareness in that hand. So that's something I would definitely look into. And then lastly, as I mentioned, range of motion. We want to make sure he has range of motion. And one of the best ways to do range of motions without using a an official tool, which you can, it's called a goniometer. You can use that. But I just draw their hand, you know, trace it on a piece of paper. Yes. And then like with their fingers closed and then, or adducted. And then what happens is then I tell them, okay, move your thumb as far as you can. And then we draw it. We trace that portion so that you can see how far it is. And then after you do your interventions, then you do it again. And it gives you a nice visual of has their range of motion increased. So that's a really easy tool. And I use that a lot with a lot of my students who don't have that. And it also brings awareness to them because they're the ones, you know, opening their fingers to sort of try to get to that range of motion that's desired. So those are the things I think we would look at. And then you're absolutely right. If it's handwriting, we would practice the letters, unfortunately. And I I say that, you know, in, in a sad way, because A, we don't have time often, because in, especially if you're working in schools, you've got 15 minutes a week or 20 minutes a week. I need to get Johnny to write J. I don't always have time to work on those component skills. However, I found a way now. I'm really proud of myself. You'll be so proud of me, Mandy. Practicing, getting paras or aids to practice because what I realized is if you incorporate precision teaching, it doesn't have to be an hour long, right? You're looking at 15 seconds, you're looking at 30 seconds, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, and that can be sort of, you know, infiltrated throughout the school day, once a day. That's not a lot to ask. So I realized that, and I think a lot of OTs don't know that. Yeah, I think also it is... You know, I found particularly with children with um, severe and challenging behavior, it is extremely effortful to use your hand that much when you have a weak hand. And, you know, we will mostly spread our handwriting programs in amongst, you know, other academic programming or language programs Mm -hmm. and run, you know, we might run one little slice of behavior and then run some other programs and literally you know, it might be, as you say, it might be 10 minutes across the whole two-hour session, but it's spread throughout the session. So it doesn't, you're right, it doesn't need to be a huge amount of work. It's the number of practices, you know, across a period of time and and without gaps in time. So, yeah. um, 
Yeah. So the other facet of that is, so if I'm working with Johnny on writing his name 15 minutes a week, that's a long time to write something that's really hard, right? Yes. And then he starts hating it. Yeah. And I, I hear OTs tell me all the time, they're like, you know, Johnny, he refuses. And I'm like, he refuses because it's hard. And if it's too hard, you've got to slice back and you've got to, again, we get into that reinforcement cycle of you've already paired yourself with something very, very hard and arduous. He's not going to work for you. So anyway, but that's that's just another tangent of why it's really important to slice things small and have them practice throughout the week. But the question I wanted to ask you, Mandy, is what about core? Do you guys look, I know you look at how the student is sitting in a chair, but if he's slumpy or I have students who sit, um, what we call Indian style on the chair, you oh, know, yeah. with their legs crossed <laughs> because they don't have that core strength. Do you look at that? So in this assessment that, yeah, the OT ran with me while I was writing all of my components um, assessments. She did that with us. And so now we do incorporate that. Yes. Thanks very much. There's occupational therapy contributing to our practice. So yeah, those two, and it's, it's really evident quite quickly whether a child can do those two positions. You're going to talk about those two positions that you assess for? Sure. Yeah. Sure. So yeah, I think this is also really a key point from OT is that, you know, we when we have a student who has fine motor difficulties, most of us, including OTs, will jump into working on fine motor skills. But the reality is uh, the physiology and anatomy and how it all progresses is that we need proximal stability to get distal mobility. So distal would be your fingers, proximal would be with your trunk. So yeah. that is a very common mantra in OT. So this basically means that the trunk and neck provide the stability so we can do distal fine motor coordination with our hands, eyes and mouth, etc. So in an initial OT evaluation, I would do this for sure, these two exercises. Uh, first, I would assess flexion. And this is called, uh, you probably did this with Sam, the yep. silly bug. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so the child lies on their back, cross their arms over their chest, legs are bent, head lifted off the floor, and they have to keep this sort of crunchy, silly bug position for as long as they can. And they are, I haven't found a lot of research norms, but I did, uh, I do have a table of approximate norms for specific ages that I'm going to share with you on our Facebook page. But so that's something that you'd want to test. And then also, the Superman extension pose, which basically now you're assessing how efficient their extensor muscles are. So the child lays on their belly with their arms extended like Superman and their legs also extended and tries to lift them up. So a lot of times children will compensate by bending their elbows. You've probably done this in, in your CrossFit or, or Pilates yeah. class. I have. I you know, I'm always compensating um, because it's hard. And then again, that's how you would measure how efficient their extensive mus muscles are. And if they're not within that norm criteria, there's something you probably want to work on. And you've probably seen OTs work on it using things like the scooter, swinging, you know, prone, because that is eliciting the uh, extensive muscles. So did you try this with Sam? Yeah, I mean, I've got a couple of things to say about that. Yes, we did. And his silly bug, as you call it, was 
really good. It was it was fine. He could lift his head up and he could hold it. I think he was able to do it for about 12 seconds. And with a little bit of practice, he got a lot better at that. And we, you know, one of the things about these muscles is that you can't just do that once a week. Like, And then the other one was very, very difficult for him. Um, and this is something I have from my athletics sort of interest. My coach is a pole vaulter. And so this Superman position and this silly bug position, as you call them, these are critical skills to pole vaulting. And so I know quite a lot about how to get strengthening in this. And so he taught us how to do what he would call rocks, which are, we were initially just holding it up, which keeps the muscle contracted, obviously, but it doesn't open and close the muscle. So he taught me how to do these little uh, opening and closing, you know, like little rocks holding your knees and holding your head up. But for the Superman position, that is a very, very difficult thing to do. I think pole vaulters, you know, can do up to 1,500 of those a day to get that real supine strength to be able to push themselves up on a pole. Kids don't need that much strength. But what we found with Sam was he couldn't both, and if you try it, it is very, very difficult. Lift his, the the test is, you know, to be able to lift both your arms out in front and your feet off the ground as well and most of your leg. So you're kind of just balancing on your stomach. He couldn't do that at all. It was, it caused him. So we had to start by teaching arms first, then legs. And then we introduced, once he could do that, we introduced this little rocking motion. And now he can do both of those things for 30 seconds. So um, we have seen, you know, do I have any data to say that that resulted in improvement, you know, in his ability to, for instance, sit in a chair and lean over paper? I don't have that. But I know that from baseline data, he's improved the ability to hold those positions for longer periods of time. So he's got stronger. So interesting, quite brilliant. So you actually incorporated fluency in the silly bug. Yes. And Superman. Yes. Right? Yes. From my knowledge of pole vaulting that came from a very <laughs> famous, <laughs> indirectly from a very famous pole vaulter. Oh, that's so brilliant, Mandy. I never thought but of that. But you can imagine it's... how important core strength is to pole vaulting because you don't have that. You fall from a very great right. height. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, um, yes, wow. we do these little rocks, they're called. And so, yeah, that's we incorporated that and then we counted rocks because they, they need to be quite quick and you can't do them for very long. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, that's how we measured that and we got improved performance because we measured baseline using you know how long he could hold it for we did training mm-hmm. and then we then um, our OT measured that again after six sessions and yeah it was it got significantly better so so you could feasibly do that take so for a student who's sitting in a chair you could take a picture of their positioning and you could actually measure with the range of motion how upright their trunk is and then you could put that intervention in do those reps and fluency activities and then take a picture again and measure what their trunk strength looks like or range of motion yeah i mean that's that's one thing but the the important thing is the amount of time they can hold themselves upright not just their ability to do it because i think most kids prompted will sit up tall for a minute you know for a short period of time yeah yeah, yeah. but it's the endurance issue because when you think how long our kids have to sit in a chair for sure it's and it's a it's a very unhealthy position for the human body so yes yeah, the amount of time i guess you know one of the measures we might 
take, for instance. So we do have an operational definition because we are a behavior analyst of strong sitting. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, back against chair, hips pushed into back of chair, you know, spine held in a neutral position and shoulders upright. And so if our kids fall forward, we will give them a strong sitting prompt. And so we record throughout the session strong sitting prompts, the amount of time they needed prompted to sit in the chair. So to be fair, we probably do have data. It's just I haven't gone back and seen. We got improvement in that because we were reinforcing, you know, strong sitting. But that, you know, doing that exercise is hopefully reduce the amount of prompts a child needs to sit up strong. And so, you know, there's lots of good reasons to work on that core strength if you have a sloppy, a sloppy sitter. <laughs> right. And that's what I was getting at. Yeah. I, I definitely uh, recognized an endurance and duration would be something you'd mention. That's but right. to initially see yeah. what their posture looks like, because that really speaks to, it speaks to what uh, muscles are being engaged without prompting. Yes. Because when a child is slumped like that, their extensors are not, those, those neurons are not firing at all. So I guess from an OT perspective, I would love to see that. But no, brilliant. So, you know, we've talked about fluency a lot. I think we need to really talk about why it's important, Mandy, because I know in the OT world, we talk about fluency, maybe in writing, but more like, are you writing fluently? You know, it's not really, we don't focus on the word and what it really means. So can you chat about that a bit? Yeah, I guess there's the common English understanding of what fluency is because if you ask someone what fluency is, they have a very good idea of what it is or at least they can recognize it when they see it or hear it. (laughs) But for anyone wanting, you know, really uh, a very good resource to go and look at what, you know, fluency is, Carl Binder has a paper which we can put in our uh, show notes called Behavioural Fluency and it describes, you know, how we might commonly describe fluency as sort of automatic or effortless, doing it without hesitation. But he also incorporates a formal definition in there as the fluid combination of accuracy plus speed that characterises competent performance. And basically, you know, when somebody can do something with fluency, they do it without making errors and they do it at quite a high speed. So uh, an example might be sometimes kids present with us with very few reading skills, but they often know the alphabet fluently. And I think that's probably because almost from birth, they're seeing it, they're hearing it, they're, you know, it's on Sesame Street, it's, it's on the wall everywhere they go, it's sung to them. So, you know, you know when a child knows their ABC fluently. It's like ABC, and it's so, or Z, as you guys would say. You know, they can do that within three seconds and they do not have to stop or think about it. So we know when we we see it or if you uh, see someone playing the piano, you know, a concert pianist, you know that is fluency, that they have practiced those component skills, you know, inside out and upside down. Or other examples might be, you know, when you see those amazing cooking shows, Aditi, and those chefs are cutting vegetables and they are perfectly sized, you know, that is fluent performance. It's so easy and effortless, you don't have to think about it and that you don't have to strain there's no there's no sort of oh you know and really having to focus so um that's what fluent performance looks like how do you know when you've achieved it well that's a really awesome thing that precision teaching brings to us and that is there are many published aims so in other words a count per minute on what is fluent performance for a particular skill 
So, and because precision teaching has been around for a long time and one of the um, beautiful things about precision teaching is collaboration and sharing what you know through the sharing of charts is that we just got really good at knowing when a skill was fluent because it would show up at a higher level skill. So should we talk a little bit, bit more about those aims, Aditi? Yes, I think aims will really confuse people in the okay. IT world because we're not used to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think they're sort of like benchmarks, but. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah. it's literally a count per minute by skill that's, mm-hmm. that over time we have worked out that when the skill is taught to that rate, like a count per minute, you have that skill and you never lose it or you get it back with just a little bit of practice. So, for instance, you know, this is just one example, but when you know your letter names at a 100 letters per minute, in other words, if you had a whole sheet of letters of all different letters in the alphabet and you read them at a 100 per minute without making any errors, we would consider that fluent performance. So, these aims, there's some published or you can develop your own set of aims of what fluent performance is. And what that really indicates, though, is something that precision teachers will call RESA or REAPS. And when you train in that way, when you take a component skill, and obviously you have to be able to define it because otherwise you don't know what you're measuring, but whether that be, for instance, those examples that I gave before, like um, pivots of a pencil or picking up a pencil and putting it down or you know, writing tallies, all of those things, when somebody can do it effortlessly and easily, there is, you can count those responses and look at what fluent performance looks like. And when we train like that, we get retention of those skills. In other words, you don't have to practice them much to retain them over time. You can also do them over what we call endurance, over longer periods of time. They um, apply in higher level skills. So, for instance, if you train letter sounds to fluency, then sounding out of words without any training and sounding out words, your sounding out of words get be- gets better. And then, awesomely, you often get this thing called adduction, which is they show up in skills, in novel skills that you have never trained before. And I had a really beautiful example of that just recently because once basically adduction is it shows up in a novel skill. Once it has shows up in that novel skill, obviously it's no longer novel. But I taught a mother to teach her daughter math facts, uh, which is a real challenge around her addition and subtraction facts. And she later uh, wrote to me and said, you can't believe that my daughter is using maths fluently now within cooking because she loved to cook and so just by training that skill all of a sudden her cooking got better and that's you know what we would call adduction that's so oh wow so this is when you train at when you train to fluency you get all of this amazing girls we call that we can call it resa so you can remember that retention endurance stability the behavior is very stable it doesn't you know you don't get drops in performance application and adduction and so that is why those aims are so important they're the rate at which people or teachers in the past have discovered that when you teach to this rate the skill then shows up in lots of different ways and it doesn't get lost and I think you know why I love this so much apart from so many other things apart from obviously all of the data that we have to support this type of um these types of measures is that one of the things that people often criticize aba for is that skills don't generalize have you heard that before aditi oh yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah and 
this is, you know, this is something I, I found with my own daughter and with other students that I taught is that the in traditional ABA using discrete trial instruction, very frequently there is not enough practice to get fluent performance of something. So like, you know, a typical goal in an ABA program might be, you know, 10, say nine out of 10 correct of a certain skill. And, you know, for our purposes in precision teaching, we look at, okay, what rate can this child do it in novel situations, in higher level skills, with interruptions, with noise playing in their ear. And when you teach in that way, generalization is assured because it's fluent performance. It's it's basically in long-term potentiation and you never lose it. So I think precision teaching brought to me an ability to see things generalizing quickly in higher level skills and never getting lost even without practice. So that's what aims are. Sorry, that's a very long way of saying that's why (laughs) aims are so important. And in particular, in handwriting, what's really important is that kids can write fast without having to put too much effort in because otherwise they can't get their ideas down on paper. And so, you know, we want right. we want kids being able to form like, you know, between 80 and 100 letters per minute so that they don't when they come to spell a word, they're not thinking about how to form their A or their Z, you know, whether they're right. doing their Z backwards or not. So that's why aims are so important. We know that that skill is fluent and it's mastered and they're never going to lose it and they can use it in a higher level skill. Yes, <laughs> to all of the above. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I'm really, really, one of my passions is to make precision teaching an integral part of OT for that very reason, because we do work on practice. I wouldn't say fluency because we don't add measurement to it. You know, there's no count per minute there. It's all practice. And if we just sort of did the practice in a systematic way, I think we would get the results much faster. That's why I'm so, so eager to get precision teaching in the realm of OT. And then when you mentioned cooking and that student, you know, you worked on math Mm. facts and then it generalized to cooking. I think that's a brilliant example because in in OT, we work on a lot of ADLs. Cooking might be one of them, but we would not start with math facts, right? We would just jump into here's a recipe. Let's. So it's a very scripted process and very sort of individual let's practice cooking mac and cheese. But what you're telling me from precision teaching, it fixes the underlying issue of why they're not able to cook efficiently. So I'm right there with you. Fluency and precision teaching is one of my passionate aspects to venture towards an OT for sure. Yeah, look at, that's right. Look at the the barrier that's holding them back from being able to engage in the skill without having to stop and think about it. And yeah. often if you dig deep enough, it's like, you know, uncovering, you know, treasure, digging down, yeah. you go, wow, here is something that we can teach that unlocks this amazing improvement in performance and so you know with with Sam I know we're going to talk about this later but you know in episode 11 but he has so I tried to teach him shoe tying and I realized on the first time when he showed it you know through a shoe across the um, clinic that he didn't even have the ability to pick up the laces with you know with his pincer grip and hold the laces so people have been trying to teach him you know, to tie his shoes for a long period of time, but he was missing all the component skills to be able to engage in that skill successfully. So it, it, I guess, makes you highly attentive to what is it that this child needs so that I can get them to be able to engage in this skill. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Brilliant. Well, we are now going to talk about takeaways. I think we've got a lot of information here, but some of the takeaways we're offering, which will be on our Facebook group, is a picture of how to use the dynamometer for hand strength. We will also have links of how to purchase it on Amazon. Great. I'm going to be the first Super- purchaser, Adili. Thank you so much yeah. for that. Oh, yay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Superman and Silly Bug. Oh, I should mention that, you know, if you purchase it, we are trying to, uh, we, we are in affiliates. So we do get some proceeds that we're going to put towards this lovely podcast to make sure we stay on the air. So thank you for your support if you do decide to do that. Superman and Silly Bug positions, they are going to be pictures on our Facebook group so you can kind of see and also some norms. So and again, I'm going to tell you these are not research based. These are just some approximate norms so that you can um, identify some aims for your students if need be. And then um, the other takeaways, I'm going to hand off to Mandy based on fluency. That's right. So I'll also put a link to Carl Biner's paper there so you can read more about what fluency is. But yeah, the key takeaway is if you want a child to do something easy and effortlessly, look at what fluent performance is for that skill and measure it. And then, you know, if you have no other aims, although Rick Cabena has published some really good aims for general skills, which you can also put in our resource notes, take your own aim, see at what rate you can do it, and then adjust it for, you know, the student that you're working with. Perfect. Thank you so much. Make sure you check out our Facebook page for all the visuals. And thank you for all the positive feedback, the emails, the texts, just the support. It's been so reinforcing. Aren't you happy I used that word? And remember, (laughs) the most valuable resource we have as therapists is each other. Without collaboration, our growth is limited to our own perspective. So collaboration over competition, indeed. Until next time, bye-bye from the Windy City. And Huru from Down Under.